welcome to League One Fun, presented by the Beautiful Game Network and brought to you by Roughneck Scarves. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ira Jersey. Today we have a very special guest who asked me to do a classic Ira mispronunciation. So here it is. With me is Ruse David Sport. It, it, was, it wasn't bad, right? But it was definitely wrong. So I mean Ross Devonport. Ross. How are you? Thank you, Ira. Thank you. I was going to call myself Ross Florida. I didn't know until this week that your Ira Jersey was your actual name. I thought it was just your sort of online uh, soccer student. Yeah, it, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to be on here. It really is. And Ross, of course, is, does color commentary for ESPN Plus for the Greenville Triumph. So you, we hear them him every single week calling the game, giving us little tidbits about what's going on up there in Greenville. Ross, thanks very much for coming on the show. No, it's a privilege to be on here. You know, this is the only podcast to cover the entirety of this new league, and uh, it's a privilege, as I said. You, know, you guys put in a lot of hard work. Yeah, I think people don't understand how it is to, to do broadcasting. So I know it takes Jason and I somewhere in the order of five to ten hours to produce this basically one-hour show. Tell us a little bit about the preparation that you have to do to call one Greenville game. I mean, it's been interesting. I, I've been doing games for the last couple of years for USL, mostly obviously championship stuff, but I was doing a different team or two different teams every week almost. And it's been a, a blessing to be able to do Greenville you know, on a weekly basis. So obviously, I don't do quite as much prep with them um, as I do with the visiting team, but I think we're almost caught up now. I think to Toronto, I think perhaps, and Madison, obviously the two teams we haven't played at home yet, but no, yeah, it's a good two to three hour work, if not more than that every week, just on one team. So how much football do you end up watching in a, a given week? Obviously, you watch the Greenville match because you're calling it, but then on the other side, you have the opponent. Do you watch the opponent's previous match, or do you usually just watch a couple of highlights and look at some of the stats? What's, the, what, what's that kind of part of the preparation look like? It really depends on how my, I'll be honest with you, it really depends on how my week is. Um, I've got a couple of other part-time jobs that I do. Um, but I try to watch as much as I can. I try to watch at least the previous match from the visiting side. Obviously, Greenville, most of the time I've already watched it. Even if it's an away game, I try to watch, tune in if I can. Um, but yeah, I would say I would say probably an hour and a half, of, obviously, of the main game, and I try to go watch the highlights from about the last three or four weeks before that, and then I'll occasionally, if I have the time, I'd like to go back and watch some stuff on YouTube of specific players, and perhaps you know some of them will have their own highlight packages up there, which helps quite a bit. What was your experience with football before you got into calling matches? I mean, obviously, being from England, played since a young age. Um, I've done a little bit of stuff on the high school side, refereeing, as well as print journalism, which is where my background is. Um, and then a friend of mine, Mike Friedman, who I worked with at CBSSports.com, where I was a fantasy writer for quite a while. Uh, he, he got the job with Vista Worldlink, who run the broadcasts from down here in South Florida. And he asked if I'd like to try it. And I, I sort of said, I'll give it a try. <laughs> he wanted to be, me to be a play-by-play guy at first. And I wasn't too sure at that point. Since then, I've done a little bit of play-by-play for a local university down here. And I, I'm actually quite comfortable with that. I'm not sure how comfortable I'd be with it in a two-man booth. But um, and well, I'm quite to the USL level yet in that. But yeah, and then this year, he offered me to do all the Greenville home games. And uh it's been a blast. I think I've improved every week. I remember I was every time I walk in that studio, I remember the first game I ever did, and I was shaking like a leaf for I think the first seventy minutes. <laughs> it was just a, a very unknown environment for me, you know, coming from the print journalism side of things. But I think every week, you know, I've still got to work on a few things, slowing down a little bit and projecting. But I'm getting there. I understand that. I 
listened to our first couple of shows just in this podcast and how many times he said um versus now. <laughs> but now let's go to USL League One news. So first is that there is a rumor that USL League One uh, expansion side Omaha is, has registered the name Union Omaha. It's not the only name, as we'll find out a little bit later in the show, that they are thinking about. But I'm, I'm not sure I love that name, but it's way better than United. So, Ross, do you have any thoughts about, you know, if, maybe I'll ask it this way. If you had a choice... What do you think Omaha's name should be? It's a tough one. I, I, don't, I, I think I tweeted out some suggestions. I forgot to look at them before today. I think most of them were a little tongue-in-cheek that I'd suggested. But it's, it's, I, think, I think I'm with you. It's okay. Um, I mean, obviously, we've got the Philadelphia. This is kind of flipping it back the other way. And you know, the, the way the League One independent sides has gone this season with the sort of, quote, different names uh, i think it's okay I, I like i like all the existing ones chattanooga i'm not a huge fan of because i think it sounds too much like a minor league hockey team um <laughs> and a logo isn't my thing but uh, i'm okay with union omar it might take a little bit to get used to but i think all the names are like that yeah so we could actually get two new signings this week that uh actually play because as you mentioned the chattanooga red wolves and also south georgia tormenta they each have a new signing. Both are eligible to play this weekend. So Tormenta FC signed Kobe Perez to his first professional contract. He had played for Tormenta 2 down in USL League 2. He's a six-foot-tall midfielder who played for the, uh, for the club for the last couple of seasons. He just graduated from college this past May from Mercer University. Uh, did you have a chance to see him, Ross? And uh, you know what, what's your thinking about how he might, uh, someone like Kobe might fit in to Tormenta? that hasn't had the best time the last couple of weeks. Yeah, he actually came on. Um, he was on the bench against uh, against Greenville on Saturday. He came on early in the second half because of, a, I think it was a knee injury to Neil Vinales. He, he, he showed a couple of things, but, you know, it's a much faster game, I think, even if it's only one division up. He took a little while for him to get, and it was obviously a tough offensive night for uh, for Tormento, who are definitely struggling and I'll, I'll talk about them perhaps a little later but i think he'll be all right he'll fit in there they're, they're hurting with injuries big time the and of course the advantage of getting someone who had played for the league two side is presumably they have the same style of play so uh, hopefully his integration will be a little bit quicker than it would be if he had to you know do what the next player is going to do because the red wolf signed scottish attacker greg hurst he's uh from stenhouse muir fc uh, up in scotland he Played four years in the Scottish Premier League for, is it St. Johnstone? Is that, the, I think that's how, yep. you, how you pronounce Saint it? Johnstone, yep. yep. Before, uh, before he wound up going to Stenhouse Muir. And I, I haven't seen anything from him. I haven't had a chance to look on YouTube. But, you know, again, the Red Wolves, they keep on grinding out these kind of one-nil wins. So maybe this is another attacking option they have, especially since Zayed seems to be an off-the-bench player and not necessarily the uh, the, the 70- or 90-minute guy that, that maybe they need up top. Yeah, I mean, I saw, I saw rumors about Hurst signing. Well, not rumors. I'd heard, seen some reports from the Scottish side of things last week about him signing and it took him a little while to confirm it. But this almost seems like a championship level signing for a team that's been playing reasonably well of late, but obviously may need a little bit of a youth injection here. They've obviously got an older team and they're getting down to the crunch time in the season where they might be feeling their legs a little more, but 22 yet, a few years of pro experience in Scotland. And I like the signing for sure. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if if he does well, how many other maybe players of his kind of quality and caliber from places like Ireland or Scotland, you know, not, that and don't play for one of the big teams in that league and they come over here. I mean, you think about how well Stephen Beattie's fit in here. It seems like it's it's kind of a comparable level maybe, and, and maybe those players could even be better. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the offseason uh, if someone like Hurst does pretty well here. Ford. Yeah, I mean, I think the college kids have always come over from the UK and, and, and done well, and now this is another opportunity for them if they want to jump straight into the pro, the pro ranks. Moving on, forward Madison coach Daryl Shore was named July Coach of the Month. I think the fact that uh, – did Madison go undefeated uh, in July? I think they may have, and if not, they... I think they lost one. They lost one, yeah, way back, that's right, way back in the beginning of July. But, you know, forward Madison really in the title challenge now after languishing at the bottom the first bit of the season with all their away games. So I think this was uh, probably a pretty good choice. Yeah, well-deserved. Um, I watched the first half of that game last weekend, and that was the first time I really watched them for an extended period, and what a fun team they are to watch. And obviously the atmosphere, I think, helps them a ton. Um, I think John Harks may feel a little hard done by obviously Greenville with two wins, one loss, and, and the draw. But obviously two of those wins were against the top two teams, and we obviously tied FC Dallas, I mean, excuse me, North Texas out there as well. But no, Daryl Shaw, very deserving. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of teams in kind of the middle group that that did really well over the past couple of weeks. And part of that's obviously because both Tormenta and uh, and North Texas have not been up to form. Like their form's been pretty poor and other teams have taken advantage. And even TFC, too, even the, some of the, the matches up in Toronto have not gone their way either. So it's, uh, you know, the, the title race, and we'll talk about this a little later, is, is really, really getting interesting. Who's going to make the playoffs? Um, I'm actually going to skip this just because we weren't able to find out a whole lot of information, but the uh, midseason meetings for USL uh, did occur last week down in Orlando. It took place during the same time as Major League Soccer were having their meetings and the MLS All-Star game was going on. They talked about infrastructure, youth development. They talked about different business partnerships, uh, but you know, most of it, uh, you know, not a lot was newsworthy other than the fact that it happened. Something, though, that did come out of this is the new structure for for the USL Academy League. I'm wondering if, you know, USL, Major League Soccer is talking about having their own inter-academy league. USL is has already started this, right? They've already announced it. They already have a plan going on. It seems like maybe they're jumping the gun a little bit. I, I'm not sure how this will fit into the whole U.S. Soccer Development Academy system. I, I don't know, Ross, do you have any thoughts about this? About you know, Because some of the teams that they're talking about for the Academy League are also teams that are in the, um, that, that are in the U.S. Development Academy. Th- places, like, uh, places like Charlotte, for example, uh, is just one name that, that jumps out at me. Yeah, it's, it's a very bold move. I, I mean, I think you've got to start with the youth, obviously, and get them going. And uh, so they were trying to have you know, local feeder clubs feed in to the, to the USL teams. And it's a bold move. You know, they're in the, what, in the second year of League One, and some of these teams are still trying to get their own sort of pro setup established. And now you're bringing in you know, 30 to 40 new kids who are having to travel. Um, and the problem is, obviously, in England, we have a system where it's set up for your professional you know, as soon as you get signed at 14 and 15, I assume many of these teams don't have the budgets, perhaps some of the MLS teams to you know sign these kids for some kind of pro contract, but 
going to be interesting to see. You have to start with the youth, though, as we've said. The quality of soccer in this country is going to get better. Yeah, the, I, you know, the feeder club idea, that's been that's been tried in, in many other jurisdictions. So just as an example, I coach at uh, our local town club, which is called Lawrence Hamnet, and we're affiliated with the New York Red Bulls. So the idea is, is that the a New York Red Bulls trainer will come down here and basically train our kids once a week. We then train them a couple of other times a week, plus the matches. But it's also a way for the Red Bulls, for example, to identify players at a younger age and maybe get them into their own academy setup and, and into their um, higher higher and better training. So I think that that type of thing can work. It also means that you have to get the youth clubs involved because there's a lot of politics in youth soccer. And I wish there was less because I think it would be way better. If, if there was, I don't know if you have experience with that yourself, Ross. Just refereeing. <laughs> and I've, I've seen how that, that's handled. Um, I mean, I just hope it doesn't turn into an extension of the sort of pay-to-play system we've seen at the travel level. I hope these teams bringing these kids in on their own dime and saying, here, come train with you know, some elite coaches, and we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, hopefully that that's the case because certainly there were, uh, I think right now there's only two MLS clubs that are, actually have pay-to-play academies. So I think as soccer gets bigger and as we support these teams more, then there'll be less and less pay-to-play. You can't just get rid of pay-to-play because they, you also might miss some some kids too. Because uh, so we, we can talk about this another time. But there's definitely uh, there, there's definitely advantages and disadvantages to pay-to-play. But at some point it has to stop for sure particularly uh, as you get up into better levels. So one of the things that I uh, determined tonight was that Omaha is planning road trips up to Madison. So it's going to be about a seven-hour bus ride from Omaha to Madison, but it's really the only drivable drivable, um, trip that Omaha is going to be able to take. And Omaha already wants to kind of become rivals with Madison, it seems like. And the way that we find that out is that I happen to have just got off the phone with um, Matt Hamanoff, who is the chief operating officer of USL League One expansion side in Omaha, Nebraska. Matt has been a soccer executive for quite a while. He's worked for DC United. He was director of sales for FC Edmonton and for five years, a general manager of the Des Moines Menace. Ross will be back with me in a minute, but here's my discussion with Matt. Matt, thanks for joining League One Fun. Let's start with your role with the club. What exactly are you going to be doing as the uh, COO? As Chief Operating Officer, Ira, uh, I'm in charge of the day-to-day operations of the team. Uh, So that includes everything from uh, setting up the technical side and making sure that Coach Jay Mims has everything he needs uh, to field the most competitive team possible, through to business operations, including ticket sales, Uh, sponsorship sales, corporate partnerships, and advertising, Uh, and then on operationally uh, through to Werner Park, our home, uh, being flipped from baseball to soccer and back again. Uh, And then everything else the fans experience when they walk through those gates, concessions, uh, merchandise, uh, and just a great fan experience for everyone. I'm sure every soccer fan in Omaha and the surrounding area would love to have an update as to what's been going on since the announcement a few months ago that Omaha was going to get their first professional soccer team. You know, please just let us know what have you been doing in, in the interim and, you know, what are your plans for the near future? Uh, it's a great question, Ira. There's really no short way to describe it. Uh, so I'll, I'll just try and give a high level 
overview, and then we can delve into more specifics as you see fit. Uh, we announced the team back on May 1, and the response has been incredible. Uh, first and foremost, season ticket deposits, which are now over 1,100, uh, which is by far a record for League One. No one really even comes close to that one, uh, as far as we understand, uh, have been um, nothing short of ph phenomenal. Uh, season ticket deposits, uh, again, started on May 1, just as we announced the team, uh, and have continued steadily since that point. Uh, so outreach into the community has been a big part of our strategy, both in terms of getting fans uh, aware of ways to support the team, uh, and then, of course, having them be involved in the branding of the team. Uh, so a lot of what we've focused on uh, are community outreach efforts, uh, both in terms of ticket sales uh, and then also, again, in terms of branding. And that includes the team name, uh, ultimately the colors, and, of course, the crest as well. Uh, and then on the technical side, Coach Mims uh, has been hard at work really scouring the, the entire country and increasingly internationally uh, for talent. Um, as I'm sure you can appreciate, uh, being a, an avid follower of the league, uh, there is no prototypical League One player. Uh, there are players from virtually every type of background, every type of playing background, uh, and from all over the world. Uh, we very much will have a diverse team, uh, both in terms of nationality, uh, as well as uh, in terms of professional background, uh, and then I'd even add amateur background to that as well. Uh, so busy on both the business side, uh, building out a front office, uh, making key hires in that, in that front office, and then as well on the technical side. So let's dig into some of these things just a little bit. So, so let's first start with the outreach. You know, the fact that you have 1,100 uh, season ticket holders already, or, or at least the deposits for those. How have you been mm -hmm. reaching out to the community, in particular the local soccer organizations and, you know, people like the Bug Eaters, which I know is in some soccer circles, like the, the ones that I'm in, they're, they're relatively famous. Uh, you know, what, what's the response mm -hmm. been like from, from them, from whether it's youth organizations or college or, uh, or, or even another uh, lower division team like the Bug Eaters? Sure. So the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, very few negative comments. I, I can honestly count them on one hand, and, and that's uh, simply because I'm, I'm uniquely sensitive, I think, in my role uh, to any criticism. Um, so I'll, I'll take the youth soccer side first. I think that, that clubs, um, not just in Sarpy County, immediately around the stadium, but throughout the Omaha Metro have been overwhelmingly supportive uh, and are incredibly interested in the opportunities that a pro team provides its local community for player development. Uh, and then, of course, just simply interest in the game, following a professional team and watching it uh, from, it, from its inception all the way through to taking the field next spring for the very first time in a competitive game. Um, the, the interesting thing it, from my perspective has been that while Omaha is not unique when it comes to youth soccer politics, uh, there is a, an open-mindedness that I found refreshing. Um, as, as I'm sure you know, I've, I've worked in a couple of different markets and youth soccer politics is a constant. Um, the reality in, in this market has been a, a real willingness from youth soccer leaders uh, to keep an open mind and see exactly how this professional team can ultimately benefit their player development efforts and community outreach, outreach within their own clubs, specifically in terms of giving their players great role models. 
uh, when it comes to um, players that, that quite honestly their kids can look up to uh, and one day aspire to be like. So that's been great. Um, the, I, I have no doubt that we're going to uh, have great crowds that are full of youth soccer players in their team jerseys throughout the season. Obviously, youth soccer uh, in, the, uh, in the U.S. is geared mostly towards spring and fall seasons with not as much organized play in the summer. Um, so I, I definitely think you'll see those jerseys more often during their seasons. Uh, but the, the honest answer to that is, is that we're, we're hoping for uh, great support from the youth, commu- youth soccer community uh, and expecting that support throughout our entire season. Um, to, to touch on the bug eaters real quick, I, I can't say enough about uh, how welcoming uh, the club leadership has really been. Uh, Jonathan Kalura reached out, uh, the owner reached out early uh, and, um, and was excited to work with us and share their, their experience. Uh, obviously, very successful experience in the Omaha Metro. Uh, obviously, they started off life in Lincoln, about 30 minutes west of the uh, of the Omaha Metro, and this past season moved over to Morrison Stadium, which Creighton University calls home. Uh, so we're off to a great start. Uh, their GM, Michael Doria, and I uh, have met a few times, including uh, at the announcement back on May 1. So I really can't say enough about how welcoming that club has been to us. Uh, and we're looking forward to a very positive, fruitful, uh, and mutually beneficial relationship, specifically in terms of their player development model. Obviously, they are a club that has gained a great reputation for helping to develop players primarily in the U23 space, players that are current college players uh, that need real game minutes during the summer months, so for about eight, nine weeks each summer. Uh, So it's a great opportunity for us to utilize a local um, playing model to help us identify uh, local and regional talent in real games. Uh, so, So nothing but great things to say there. So let's stick on the this development and youth development platform. I mean, it's, it seems interesting that maybe, you know, the bug eaters ultimately might even be a feeder into uh, into the Omaha, into the Omaha pro team. So let's, let's talk about your plans for youth development. Obviously, you have a lot to do just to get a, a first team on the pitch next year. But with the USL Academy launching next year, um, you know, have you already started to develop some kind of plan for uh, uh, the out years in order to develop an, an academy type product that could, you know, build homegrown players for uh, for the Omaha team. I, I'm guessing with Coach Mims' history as an MLS Academy um, d- director and and scout, that that seems like a natural fit. Yeah, the the short answer to that, Ira, is yes. Uh, the longer answer is is uh, to be honest uh, and and frank, if I may, uh, that we're not ready to release all of the details on that. What I can tell you is, is that the USL, through their Academy Cup, um, has provided a fantastic platform for USL teams to have the highest level of competition available to a pro club through their youth development initiatives. Uh, the reality, uh, as, as anyone in this business will tell you, is that youth soccer politics often prevent uh, teams at their inception, at least, from going full force and creating a club uh, in a traditional model from youth all the way uh, from rec uh, at the youngest ages all the way through to the beginning of select or travel soccer at U9 and U11 uh, all the way up through the high school age groups. Um, the, the simple 
truth is, is that we have zero desire to alienate uh, or create competitors of youth clubs in the local market uh, that ultimately we want to be supporters of our first team. So for that reason, we're taking a cautious, um, uh, very deliberate approach to youth development. Uh, and ultimately, I think, uh, excuse me, I know that we'll create a youth development system in partnership with local clubs rather than in competition with them. Uh, I'll also uh, give a shout out real quick to the state association uh, in Nebraska, who's been incredibly supportive. Uh, their director of coaching, Casey Mann, has been uh, fantastic to work with uh, to date uh, and incredibly supportive of our efforts uh, when it comes to the planning stages of youth development. Uh, but when it comes to anything more specific than that, I would uh, respectfully ask that we hold that to a future conversation, <laughs> if that's okay. Yeah, no problem at all. Uh, so, Matt, were you down in Orlando for the midseason league meetings? Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, I'm sure that was an exciting time, and I'm sure you got a lot of pats on the back and also uh, some insight on the challenges and opportunities in, in starting a new team. But but first, before we dig into that a little bit deeper, so Ross Devonport, who's our guest host on League One Fun tonight, wants to know who at the midseason meeting did you learn the most from? Oh, that that's an easy one. Uh, that's our friends in Madison. Uh, Madison are, are doing a phenomenal job, as anyone who's attended their games will tell you. Um, they, uh, they have captured that community's interest and passion in ways that I think even the most optimistic observer could not have imagined. Uh, I was fortunate enough to attend their home game a couple of weeks back when they hosted Chattanooga in that 1-1 draw uh, and got to experience firsthand uh, the energy and excitement and the passion that they bring into that uh, that stadium. Um, the place was rocking. There's there's no doubt about it. And uh, and they've done a, a great job in terms of supporting the organic growth of their fan base. Obviously, the flock gets a tremendous amount of um, credit, and it's absolutely deserved. They were phenomenal hosts. I had the great opportunity to meet them pregame and march to the stadium with them. Uh, could not have been nicer, despite the fact that I was clearly wearing USL Omaha uh, logo on my shirt, um, but, but well, I, they're, I they're not rivals yet. Right. So exactly, exactly. I think that conversation can be very different in a year from now. That's for sure. Um, but the, the reality is that the flock is, is really the beginning of that, of that story. Uh, not the entire, uh, the entire picture. I had the, a great opportunity to meet with fans uh, who were sitting at midfield and at the opposite goal on the roof deck. Uh, and to a person, they all had smiles on their faces during the game. Uh, they were all talking about what a great experience that club puts on for their fans and how they clearly care about the experience that fans have when they walk through those gates. Uh, so, so when you ask in terms of who we learn the most from, uh, it's, it's got to be Madison. So and were there any particular league initiatives that you found particularly exciting? Um, you know, from a player safety perspective uh the the uh, head injury sub uh is obviously uh not just a league initiative but a uh a national initiative and increasingly a fifa initiative one that i i hope gets the attention uh and kudos that it ultimately deserves um obviously head injuries are a well-documented issue um in in our game uh and i i can't say enough about the league being at the forefront of implementing uh, these these rules moving forward. Um, when it comes to overall competition, 
Uh, I think that the league, obviously, being in its first year right now, uh, is going through uh, a lot of learning. Uh, I, I wouldn't use the term growing pains, uh, but the reality is, is they're learning as they go. Uh, and many of the sum assumptions that they came in with uh, are, are either being proved or disproved as the games take place. I, I think that the expectations were insanely high simply because the USL has run uh, successful leagues for however many decades uh, to assume that everything would go flawlessly in year one is obviously unrealistic. That being said, I don't know that anyone can, can honestly say they're not doing a great job overall for a, a league that is obviously just a few months old at this point. So you mentioned that you went up to Madison. I'm wondering, are you talking to some other teams in USL, whether it's the championship or League One, about changes that you're going to be making to the uh, the baseball field where you'll be playing in order to retrofit it for soccer use? Because I know Lansing, like a lot of the guys at Lansing who we talk to in the Beautiful Game Network, our, our uh, sister podcast, Capital Combustion, they often talk about the challenge of having, you know, grass in the infield, in, in the baseball infield and, and the like. So are, are you thinking about that from a playing surface perspective? And, and what changes to the stadium are you making? I know there's a multi-million dollar plan to uh, to retrofit part of the stadium for this. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, the, the other teams that we've focused on, uh, to your point, are teams that go right through the infield and, uh, and will put down sod over the current infield dirt or skin, as they say, on the baseball side. Um, unlike a couple of the teams you mentioned, uh, we plan on having a retractable mount uh, that sinks down and that we're ultimately able to fill in and, and put sod right over for a pristine, completely flat, green, uniform surface um, for, uh, for the players to, to be able to have the best possible canvas to apply their trade. Uh, when it comes to specific teams that we've engaged, uh, obviously Tulsa, uh, is at the forefront of that conversation along with Tacoma, although I'll note that Tacoma, of course, doesn't have the retractable mound. They use a different system that scoops the mound right out. Um, and then, of course, El Paso is on that list as well. Uh, so we're looking forward to continuing to learn from their, uh, from their experiences. Uh, and Oh, and I, I should also mention Memphis, of course, uh, who do a, a good job. Uh, in the conversion as well. Memphis is, is the more that I, I think about it, Memphis is probably the closest to what we're attempting to, uh, to do. Um, obviously, it's a work in progress, and, and we haven't actually flipped the field yet. Uh, but in terms of planning, uh, teams like Memphis, uh, Tulsa, and El Paso are, are really the ones that we look to the most when it comes to um, experience. And, and ultimately the uh, the end product of a, of a great field for our players to play on. It seems like the Midwest might be a ripe area for USL League One expansion. You, you know, would your old haunt Des Moines maybe, you know, be a possible market? Or, you know, are, do, have you suggested any additional places given your experience in the Midwest and with soccer to the, to the league as to where they might look? Uh, with all due respect, I'll, I'll leave that question to the individual market. Uh, because ultimately it comes down to uh, motivated owners um, wanting to bring professional soccer to their markets. And without that piece, there really is no conversation. Um, so I, I would respectfully uh, uh, pass that on to the individual markets to 
determine if, if they are truly suitable and, and ready to host professional soccer. So, so fair enough. So how did you get involved with the Omaha project? Was that some, were you approached or were you just interested in this and went to the ownership and, and said, hey, I want to be involved? How did you come to be the COO of, of Omaha? Uh, you know, like like many other people in in this uh, business, uh, it was a combination. Um, I know that uh, that I was both recommended and I sought it out essentially at the same time as as the opportunity really began to take shape uh, back in the spring of 2018, so a little over a year ago now. Uh, and uh, and myself and and the team president Marty Cordero, who's also president and GM of the Omaha Storm Chasers, the AAA baseball team that calls Warner Park home. Uh, hit it off from day one, uh, and I um, uh, I was pretty persistent in terms of uh, in terms of making my feelings known that I felt I could do a great job leading this franchise uh, through its inception and up to uh, and including uh, its inaugural season in 2020. So it must be a little bit different being a professional club, like having to, just personally having to learn the rules and regulations, things like international transfers and how you register players with the league and with the federation, like all of those things. So has it has it, there been a steep learning curve that you've had to get up? And, and where do you learn that from? Is that something you learn from other GMs or is that something that the league has kind of a, a boot camp for someone in your position? Yeah, the, the answer is both. Uh, I've, I've spent a tremendous amount of time picking the brains of my new colleagues throughout not just League One, but the championship as well. Uh, and there's, there's a true spirit of, um, of compromise and, and willingness to, uh, to share best practices, uh, and as well as incredible support from the USL office down in Tampa. Uh, they hosted me for uh, a couple of days back in late June. Uh, and put together an onboarding program that really got me up to speed on, um, I, I don't want to say everything, of course, but, but more than I possibly could have hoped for. Uh, I left there with a, a much better understanding of expectations, of, of standards, um, and of uh, both competitive and business practices uh, that I think will ultimately serve our, our team well moving forward. So I know I risk getting a no comment, and I'm sure you knew that this question was coming, but it's mm-hmm. been going around social media that you've trademarked the name Union Omaha. Any comment? Sure. I'm, uh, I'm happy to share that, that Union Omaha is one of several names we've explored uh, and, uh, and will continue throughout that process uh, all the way up until we ultimately uh, announce the name in the coming weeks and months. Great. Well, at least you're not another United, I hope. Um, Too many of those out there already. Matt, thank you very much for coming on League One Fun. Uh, Certainly my pleasure, Ira. Thanks for all you do in in terms of helping to promote the league and and the teams and and, um, uh, bringing this content to the fans. Great. So I hope as as you progress in building your roster, maybe come the spring we'll, uh, we'll have you back. And we really appreciate your time tonight. That'd be great. Thanks again for having me. Thanks very much for Matt to come on. We'll hopefully have more information and more interviews with some people from the new expansion Omaha side, whatever its name will be. We know that there's at least one that has been trademarked, but as Matt said, there's more uh, in the works as well. 
So Ross is still here with me. We're gonna be talking about the results from week 19. Let's go to the first one. This was Saturday, 7 p.m. Was Chattanooga Red Wolves one beat North Texas, who was not able to score. You know, I don't know exactly how all of this game went because uh, on ESPN Plus they had some te technical difficulties. But what we do know is that Arturo Rodriguez did not start. His brother David played as the number 10 uh, spot in his place. Was definitely missed, it seems. North Texas tastes defeat in consecutive games for the first time this season. The goal came in the 54th minute from Stephen Beattie, a PK. Juan Mare was fouled uh, in the box. And, of course, Beattie slots at home. We did see the highlights of this, though, Ross. You know, what were your thoughts about the foul on Mare? Was it... Uh, it was it soft? Was it uh, was it legitimate? Would you have blown the whistle if you were refereeing that game? Now, I'm no Jason, and I'm not going to try and replicate his amount of spice in, in these takes tonight, but <laughs> I don't think that was a penalty. Re referee uh, Jasmine Peralta, she wasn't sure at first. She actually signaled for a free kick and then looked over to her AR, and then she, he ran to the end line, which was signaling that it was a penalty, but it, it was a very questionable piece of contact, too, but... Uh, the decision was made and Beatty slotted it away. Well, I think if you call that if you call that a foul, then it was definitely in the box. So I think the she looked over at the AR probably for the location as opposed to the actual foul. I mean, she had to, you know, call, call the foul. So I mean, that it winds up being one nil. Uh, you know, Bisante gets a second yellow in the 70th minute. So uh, North Texas was down a man for the last 20 minutes of the game. There's another chance in the 82nd minute, uh, you know, Walls missed this header. He was wide open. It was almost harder to miss than it was to make. Um, so I'm not really sure, um, you know, what, what, what to make of that. But, you know, North Texas did its typical thing. They had 63% possession, but they were not able to get a lot of shots. In fact, they only had eight shots total, and they had zero shots on target. That's the first time that they've not had a shot on target all season um you know a any thoughts from what you saw of this match it was it was minimal as you said um i think obviously the chattanooga took a good look at the video of the game against greenville um the last two games in greenville where north texas has failed to score against them and i think just like tormented teams are figuring north texas a little bit out they've had a lot of changes you know in that lineup. i know they made a signing today bringing up an academy player who featured i think earlier in the, way earlier in the season and uh yeah, North Texas, I think the gap's going to be closing and it's going to be such a fun race, for the, even for the four spots now. I think a couple of weeks ago, we maybe thought just for the last two spots, but Tormenta could have really closed the gap if they'd taken care of Greenville on Saturday, but they didn't, and it's going to be a great race. Yeah, so just a couple of thoughts that I had is one was when you look at the the statistics and look at the heat maps and some of the other data that we're able to get that you know USLLeague1.com is is a great place for a lot of those statistics is that Pepe only had one touch in the defensive half, so he didn't come back very much, but he only had a 54% passing accuracy, only won three out of eight duels. You know, this was a young player who just was tearing up the league earlier in the season, and and I agree with you, Ross. I think people have watched tape on him and they determined how to close him down so how did Chattanooga do that well it seems that just from the information that we have is that Ualfe who I always love myself a good number six he was able to shut down Pepe so when you overlay the heat map of where Ualfe was versus where Ricardo Pepe was the overlap is around 85 percent 
So basically, like, I would imagine that Walfe basically man-marked Pepe, and that really took Pepe out of, the, out of it. And when Ronaldo Damas isn't on the pitch, which he wasn't, that was, uh, where was the offense going to really come from? Uh, it, it just wasn't there. And then once, of course, the North Texas goes down a man, then it's a problem. But th- that doesn't mean that Mangles wasn't... Um, wasn't uh, challenged. I mean, he had to make a couple, save a couple of crosses, and and collect a couple of crosses. So it wasn't that North Texas had nothing uh, going on, but um, but they just weren't particularly dangerous on the night. Yeah, I mean, you think of Brazilians as being, you know, goal scorers and flair, but they've always had very solid defensive midfielders, and Wolfie's well, been that this year. I think he's probably been the best in the league, um, and that was a great win for Chattanooga to continue that nice little run here. They've done it; they tied a lot last month, but this was a big win for them. Yeah, and they play each other again in ten days. <laughs> so, and and I think you you had a note here that Chattanooga had just one touch in the North Texas box until the fiftieth minute. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was looking at the touch map and I was trying to see just how much they got in that final third. Yeah, you know, one touch in the North Texas box till the fiftieth minute. So clearly, sitting back, sitting back, which seems to be a tactic of a lot of teams. Not every team, obviously, but as the season has gone on, so sitting back against North Texas and some of the other more offensively potent teams and then just waiting for that counter-attack or the, again, a chance like a penalty or anything from a set piece. So, yeah, Chattanooga did what they had to do. Great. Ross, anything else on this match? No, I think that's good on that one. Right. Well, here's a match that you called, so I'm sure you'll have something to say about it. But this is Greenville Triumph overcame South Georgia Tormenta 1-0. Jake Keegan with the goal in the 29th minute and assisted by Omar Mohammed. It was really nice build-up play from the midfield by Greenville. Boland passes the ball out to the right to, to Klausa, and, uh, who is in the middle. Klaus squares the ball off to Walker, who is right in the center circle, and he gets fouled as he passes the ball outside to Polak, who then takes uh, a lot of space. He had a ton of space in front of him. I don't know how people let Tyler Polak have that much space all the time, and every time it happens, he makes things. <laughs> he, he does good things. Mohamed checks back to the ball and then makes a run toward the end line. A Pola, uh, uh, Polak just... Uh, hits a nice through ball to Muhammad, who cuts it back to Jake Keegan right around the penalty spot. Jake Keegan opens up his body nicely, turns the right side of his right foot and hits it with the inside and uh, redirects the ball to the far post, goes inside netting. That's it. I mean, that was the only goal, but it was a beauty. Uh, uh, Ross, you know, talk me through that. Do you, do you think, you know, it, this was not a uh, an unusual type of goal for, for Greenville? Well, the connection, I think that was Mohammed's first assist of the season, if I remember correctly. He, we've been waiting for him to, he was obviously a little banged up at the start, and it took him a while to adjust to the, the way we, the way Greenville plays. And we've been waiting for this Mohammed uh, to Jake King in connection. And I think I mentioned on the commentary that the, the pass was great. But if you watch again, I think we actually missed the goal in the initial broadcast but if you watch the replay from the near side jake keegan makes just an, a stellar run so that he almost just checks just a slight side step to his left to get away from the central defenders of tormenta and it was a nice little finish with the inside of its right foot it was a better finish than a lot of people might have think it was the more you watch it the better you appreciate it yeah for sure i mean that, that's one reason why i wanted to get into it because just the fact that the way that he turned his body and got his hips facing toward the goal as he was running toward the uh toward the the other sideline was uh, that you know that was pretty impressive. I mean, it, you know, I think one of the most underappreciated skills that a soccer player has to have, or, or abilities, I should say, is really balance. And I think that's where Jake 
Jake Keegan really has something. And, you know, I, I should have asked him about his balance and, and, you know, does he do yoga and things like that? Because it does, <laughs> it does seem that, that Jake has a few of his goals have been pretty acrobatic and you need to have the proper balance. I mean, when you think about some of the other goal scorers in this league, you, you can think about the same thing. We'll get to one of those in not too distant future. So Ross, one thing I did want to ask you about was, what did you think of when uh, when Jad Arsling came in as a substitute in the 62nd minute? Uh, he came in to play left back, which kept Connor Antley on the right side, but it, it, neither neither seemed to be much of a threat uh, after that substitute. It didn't seem like uh, it didn't seem like Tormenta really was able to create much with either of them on the field. Yeah, it didn't make much difference at all. I think they, they've been struggling again with injuries. Um, they're missing a real true goal scorer up top. And I really thought at that point in the game, I think it was, what, 28 minutes left to go, that maybe they could have brought Jerry St. Beal on. He'd been playing well of late and get up that wing. Or maybe, you know, another attacking option on the bench, but it just didn't happen. And obviously the, the, the substitution didn't make much of a difference at all. They, they really struggled to get anything going in the final third. Yeah, and, and and Antley, I mean, just as an example of this, so most of Connor Antley's touches were actually in the defensive half, which normally you don't say. I mean, earlier in the season, when he was playing really well, when he made player of the month, all of those things, it was, you know, two-thirds of his touches would be in the offensive half. And, and I was even joking around that he wasn't actually a, a, a fullback or a defender, but he was more of a yeah. winger and an attacker. And that, that hasn't been the case. And, and you know, maybe that that's kind of an issue. I don't know if that's something that uh, that Coach Milarese is, you know, really, really trying to do consciously or if other teams are just forcing uh, Tormenta to kind of back off and not be as attacking and uh, counterattacking as they have been in, in the past. Yeah, well, the, the stunning thing was we found Charlie Dennis before the game at fullback Chris McCoviak, my play-by-play guy, and I was sort of looking at each other and said, you know, why is one of the better offensive cogs in the league playing at fullback? And I know they've obviously had some injuries, but Jerry St. Bill's healthy and Arslan's healthy, and it just didn't make much sense at all. Well, Tormenta has to figure it out because, like you mentioned, their uh, their lead is slipping away. We all thought that uh, North Texas and Tormenta would be up at the top and, and get those home fields, but that's not necessarily the case anymore because, you know, 10 points uh, ten points in their last five matches with only one loss for, for Greenville uh, and wins against both North Texas and Tormenta. You know, Ross, how much confidence do you think Greenville has at the moment? This is an interesting question. I actually asked... John Harks this exact question. I think it was my first question for him last week in our conference call. And and as Harks said, they've had confidence all season. They, the results have been there. I think perhaps the Chattanooga, the loss there was a disappointing one, and the loss obviously to Tucson last month was, another, was a sort of an aberration. But other than those two games, they've been in every single game. They've created the chances. They just haven't gone in. And now the goals have started to flow. You watch that, even though, yeah, they were playing at 10 men when they won 4-0, um, in Dallas, but that game, as soon as that first goal went in, you just saw them relax. They were knocking it around, and they look like a completely different team. You know, the defense has been stellar. Dallas Jay is one of the best keepers in the year. I, I was I was thinking to myself today when I was driving around that a Greenville, the one team, assuming North Texas finishes first, a Greenville have to be the one team that they really don't want to see in that full spot. <laughs> yeah. I would. I, I don't know about that because we're about to talk about, and this is my transition to the next game, because there's another team that's been pretty hot lately too. Now, maybe it's just a streak, but Lansing Ignite, 
wins 3-0 against Orlando City B. Now, granted, it's against Orlando City B, which has the most porous defense by far in the league. Um, but Lansing is on a little bit of a run here, too. And, um, you know, let's go through let's go through this match a little bit. So in the eighth minute, Moshebane scores. Uh, you know, Tumi Moshebane, who, as we'll just talk about a little later, wound up being player of the week. He gets an assist from Xavier Gomez. So Gomez, Gomez pressured the ball about 30 yards out. Actually took a lucky bounce off of Go- so Gomez hits it hits off the the person who he was stealing it from hits off of Gomez again and happens to bounce out and Tumi Moshevane gets the ball is able to, uh, to to drive into the box without too much pressure on him he really could have squared the ball over to Pado so the the uh, that was probably the better move I would call it the better move except for the fact that uh, that Moshevane was a little bit greedy and he was able to take a little touch. To his uh, to his right and gets around uh, Juliano Chade, who is the, the goalkeeper for OCB, who's about 17 yards off his line, and Moshe Bane taps it home for, for the first goal. Uh, you know, Lansing Lansing presses presses, and when they do, they they make problems for some other teams. Ross, like you know, which is the reason why I think. Quite frankly, both Greenville and Lansing could be trouble for who's ever at the top of the table if they uh, if they make the playoffs. Yeah, I think they've got a ton of offensive threats. They're very similar to forward Madison, that anybody can beat you sort of at any time. Unlike, you know, Greenville, Jake Keegan, you know, is there one guy that you really have to keep an eye on, perhaps? Um, but, but Green, I mean, Lansing just have a ton of talent. And that first goal by Tubi, if you watch that again, it was a lovely shimmy he made. He, he made Julio Chardet look very silly. Um, and then we'll talk about the second goal as well, which Chardet didn't do particularly well on either. No, yeah, Shade had a had a bad day for sure. Because fourteen uh, in the fourteenth minute, so only six minutes later, Elma N four scores with an assist from Tumi Moshebane. So Moshebane took a, a left footed in swinging corner, and like no one attacked the ball. Like not even Shade. Like Shade kind of sort of came out, but he was a little bit reluctant. And you know N four, who is by. F- I, I don't know if he's the shortest player on the field, but certainly not one of the tallest. Uh, he's able just to redirect it with his head into the goal. Um, Chade falls, hits the ground really hard and was shaken up afterwards. But, you know, Ross, the smallest guy in the inside the six-yard box is the guy that gets the goal off a corner. And it wasn't even a deflection or anything. It was just it was straight from, from the kick. Uh, and, he, you know, you said you wanted to talk a little bit about this goal. Please do. Yeah, I mean, I don't think N4 scored too many goals with his head. Chardet, as we, as we say in England, he, he came out and went, went and flapping and fishing. And he was as a goalkeeper. Once you leave your line, you've got to be committed to it. And it just sort of seemed like Chardet got a little caught up in traffic and, and the ball ended up in the back of the net for 2-0. Yeah, I, th- I think at first Chardet was thinking that, you know, hoping to get a call for a foul or something. But he came over the back of N4. So if anything, he was fouling N4, not the other way around. Uh, there was a uh, cup, uh, so there was another goal in this match. But before we do that, in the 65th minute, we have to talk about this because uh, Rafa Mensingen shoots from about the 18-yard box. Chade uh, makes a great save. I mean, actually, this was a great reaction save with his left arm. Just gets his left arm up there. The ball falls back out to Gomez, uh, who's just outside the penalty area. Gomez shoots. It hits the right post hits off of Chade's head, and then goes back out for a corner. Um, I mean, it could have been an own goal, right? So, you know, a few times you've seen things like that where it goes off the post, hits the keeper, and then 
goes into the net. Chade was lucky. I think Chade just sat there for just a beat on the on the ground, saying, "What can possibly go wrong, more wrong tonight for me?" <laughs> well, being a goalkeeper, I can admit that was an amazing save. But I've been wrong so many times on save of the week this year. What should have been save of the week? I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if this didn't get it. But it's an amazing save, <laughs> a double save, I should say. Yeah. So Scott Sterling would be proud. Um, if you know that uh, that particular video, in the eighty in the eighty fourth minute, Rafa Mensigan gets a goal assisted by Kyle Card. They were playing out of the back, so Cleveland gets the ball, throws it to the right touch line, where Moon doesn't even settle it. He just takes it off his chest and redirects the ball to Carr, and Carr is wide open. I didn't know who was supposed to be covering Carr, where the where the number eight or the number six was for OCB, but he had probably 30 yards of space in front of him, which of course he took, and then Carr's not challenged all the way up, does a quick soul roll to his left, and then does a little right-footed chip in between four OCB defenders that Rafa Mensigan, and you know, if you watch this, you have to watch it a couple of times to understand what happens. Yes, Kyle Carr did a great job getting the ball to Mensigan, but Mensigan had a lot of work to do. The ball uh, was in the air. Rafa takes it off of his right thigh. It bounces actually about six yards in front of him, and he has to catch up to it. Chade is a little bit slow getting off his line, and uh, Mensigan's able to get it and then one time finish it with his right foot underneath Chade, who maybe could have done a little bit better. But like I said, like just wasn't his day. Um, anything on this goal, Ross? Well, I just want to mention. I just want to mention Rafa Mensigan. I didn't. I wasn't sure if he'd be able to take soft touches off his thighs. <laughs> he's built. He's he's built like no other soccer player I think I've ever seen before. You look at him and you, you just you don't you think this guy can't be any good. But he's his last couple of months he's played amazingly. Yeah, so so one of the things that I would say with this particular match is, you know, OCB's you know not particularly good, and even though Chade didn't do well for uh, for a few of the goals, he still made nine saves on the day. So it, you know, quite frankly, I mean, you have you get peppered with shots like he was, and you know, at some point there were twelve shots on target, there were twenty seven total shots that Lansing was able to take. It's not Chade's fault. I mean, quite frankly, I mean, maybe the first goal or the second second goal, you could argue maybe he could have, but uh, you know, he had a lot, a lot of saves. Um, Cleveland did have three saves in the day. One or one or two could have easily made it two one and would have made a more interesting match, but they weren't. Uh, let's see what else. Because I love my number sixes, I love my defensive midfielders. Uh, if you haven't yeah. heard, by the way, I'm going to prop another podcast and listen to Soccer 101 and where these numbers come from. If you haven't done that, our friends at the Total Soccer Show, Daryl and Taylor, talking about the numbers. But Xavier Gomez playing as kind of a right-sided number six, part of a number uh, a double pivot. He had 48 passes. 85% pass completion, 112 duels, had an assist and another chance created. And um, and although Moshe had seven chances created, you know, I think Gomez was really pulling the string in this game. When you watch it and just where all the plays, most of the plays started, it, they started with Gomez, with the exception of maybe that last goal, which Nick Moon's chest has to take the, uh, has to take the credit for. <laughs> yeah, no, Xavier Gomez, this league is full of quality number sixes, and Xavier Gomez, as Lansing, as Gomez goes, so does this Lansing team on the defensive side of things, and they, they certainly start a lot of things, and a lot of quality offensive chances through him. Anything else on this particular match, Ross? No, I mean, I think, yeah, we know we know how OCB is. I think Lansing, 
I think I put in my notes a little later, they've got what three or four more games played than anybody else. They've, they've really got to win some games here. and It's going to be tough for them to sort of sit and watch and see how these teams behind them. This was three points they needed to get. Yeah, the guys at Capital Combustion are thinking that they need to get uh, probably 10 to 12 points in order to ensure that they make the playoffs because they only have six games left So versus everyone else who has eight or more. So... We're moving on to the next match. Madison, forward Madison, scored one against FC Tucson, who scored zero. So Madison on a roll as well. Don Smart in the 44th minute scored with an assist from Josiah Nunez. It was a very, at least I thought it was a weird counter goal. It came off of a goal kick from Tucson. And then there was a couple of nice passes through the middle in transition. And I'm not sure what Jose uh, Terran was doing but he completely lost track of Don Smart and when you lose track of Don Smart bad things happen um you just can't do that right so um you know Smart uh you know was was it a shot was it not a shot from Don Smart Ross what what do you think (laughs) he I I did read a story from the the Lansing newspaper where he actually admitted it was definitely just a cross that came off the outside of his boot a little bit but it was one of those ones that sometimes that's all you need is to get it looping over that goalkeeper, yeah, Jose Tehran. I mean, Don Smart's probably the last guy in the league that you can leave wide open. We've seen some of the finishes he's had this year from you know 15 to 18 yards. And this, maybe, the, again, this one was a bit of an accident, but it ends up in the back of the net regardless. And what do you think about the lineups for uh, for, for this particular match, Russ? Well, from forward, I think I've obviously been having some additions as the season's gone on coming down from Minnesota. And, and now they've used the same starting lineup for the last three games, all wins. And I think they're the most dangerous team at the moment. I can't remember if they're number one in the power rankings, but they, they perhaps should be. Um, I, I believe, I believe they hit number one in the power rankings this week, and they were very proud of that on social media. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. And Greenville <laughs> hosts them coming up next week, and then we they play them again on August 28th, which is a game I hope to be at. And uh, yeah, one of the most exciting teams I think I've seen this season. Tucson, uh, they held their own in the first half. Again, I didn't, didn't watch the second half of this game, but... They're very similar team, I think, to Madison. They're athletic and quick, and you know, they had a couple of chances. Sylvester made a good save in that first half, and even though it was right at him, he was in the right place at the right time, and that was up for save of the week as well. But Tucson, you know, hang, hanging in there on this road trip. Yeah, yeah. Tucson, Tucson looked dangerous. I mean, this easily could have been a one-one match for sure. Uh, there were, uh, you know, three shot. They had three shots on target, seven total. They completed actually. Tucson completed five of fourteen crosses, which is, you know, when you do that, you you often, you know, get a chance or two created. Um, both teams had eighteen tackles, and both teams had uh, over well twenty-five. Uh, clearances at uh, 20 actually 27 clearances for uh, for forward Madison 25 clearances for FC Tucson so you know very defensive game overall but uh, you know possession was heavily in favor of Tucson and you know they had a few chances but just not enough I, I think that that's been Tucson's problem on this road trip is that they just they're able to to possess the ball in the midfield but in that final third they just don't find good shooting opportunities and, and guys just don't do it so uh, you know, Wyatt Olmsberg, uh, I think he was pretty important in this game. He uh, he didn't have any tackles, but he had six clearances and an interception. Plus, importantly, um, he had a block shot off the line. So there were two two chances actually that were uh, that were cleared off the line in the first half by um, by the forward Madison defense, and Olmsberg had one of them. So I, I think that probably Olmsberg needs a little bit more respect, and he got it this week too because he made the team of the week. Uh, I believe that was his first team of the week. Uh, 
appearance, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, also on the front line for FC Tucson was, you know, only Devin Jamga, who who we spoke to on this show, had a uh, had a chance created. None of the other front three had any of the three chances that were cr- shots on target. The all of the other chances created were done by midfielders. I, I, I did you see anything in the, in the first half of this game, Ross? That that maybe Ford was doing to try and shut down the FC Tucson attack, or was it just FC Tucson didn't do a great job in in the uh, in this match? Yeah, I think FC Tucson, and this is why I think they're fourth of six games on the road. The legs are going to get a big. They looked a little, not a little lethargic, but they didn't come out of the gate as they as they can. Didn't get the, didn't open those legs, get those sprints going down the wings. And listen, Madison again, one of the better teams in the league of late, and I think they did what they needed to do you know, against the team that has to be begging to get home at some point here. I think the only person that's traveled more than sd Tucson lately is Jason. <laughs> he's been away a bunch of yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's and and he's going to be all over the world. I'm I'm we'll get back to his uh his trip over the pond when he gets back in a couple of weeks. This may have been even though even though forward Madison won, I think this may have been Oliver White's worst game for forward. Um like I'm not saying that it was a terrible game. I'm just saying that he wasn't as dangerous as he's been. He's only had 20 touches in, in the 70 minutes he was on the pitch. Didn't have any chances cre- created. Oh, excuse me. He did have two chances created, but they weren't good chances. Uh, you know, is do, do you think do you think the other way that maybe one of the issues that forward was having um, besides the the goal that was actually scored late in the late in the first half might have been that that Tucson was really trying to you know, cut down the the front three of, of forward Madison. I mean, obviously they were trying to do that, but, you know, when, when Oliver White's not, not clicking of late, it seems like the Madison def, uh, Madison attack is not quite as, as dangerous. Yeah, from watching Tucson a few weeks ago against Greenville and then again in this half of the game here, they're, they're actually one of the more impressive teams. I think they got, they got obviously a lot of bad luck with that early schedule. Uh, and obviously this little road trip they've had to do here and their home fields getting renovated. And um, yeah, I think with, with, the thing is with forward, you, even with one, somebody's going to have a bad game, somebody else is going to pop up. And again, it was a lucky finish, but it's going to be tough to keep them down from, for the, for a full 90 minutes. And Tucson did a pretty reasonable job in this game. It, it, I think they were disappointed to come away with not with, without a draw. And Tucson does have a lot of home games in down the stretch. So, you know, don't count them out from the, from the playoff picture either, at least at this point. And I think that leads us to uh, the standings currently. Uh, Ross, so can you guess who's in first place? I'll give you a hint. It's the same <laughs> team that's been all season. Yes, I, I think the boys in Texas are still hanging in there even after a couple of uh, defeats here. Yeah. They've done enough so far early in the season. Yes, they did, but they have to worry because people are catching up. On a points-per-game basis, this is the first week that they are under two points per game all season long. So they've, uh, they're have they at 1.89 points per game. South Georgia Tormenta still in second place at 1.67 points per game. And then three through six is just, it's a dead heat. I mean, your Lansing has 1.5 points per game down to Greenville at 1.44. And at squished in between there is forward Madison and Chattanooga Red Wolves. So, and, and those guys are all basically within a draw of each other. Um, even Tucson and, and Toronto 2, FC2, both on 1.28 points. So they're not really out of it either if they can beat a couple of the teams uh, ahead of them. Richmond, it's a tough ask for them to make the playoffs at this point. I mean, they would really probably have to win out and get some help 
in order for that to happen. And OCB is not mathematically eliminated, but they're um, you're counting in a couple of games there. So, yeah, so everything's, everything's just so tight, as you said, and it's almost like you, you turn away. One team is having a rough stretch, and they're back down in eighth, and then they'll have a couple of wins, and they're back up in fourth. And, and I think I said on Twitter the other day, I just almost want to just wake up in September and look at it and see where it is, because right now it's just so hard <laughs> to predict anything. In yeah, that middle spot. I remember that tweet. And and here's the thing, you know, the thing is those four teams that are in dead heat for three through six, they're all in good form, right? So yep. they all of them so any of them easily have a chance. And and like you mentioned, they're they're all within spitting distance of South Georgia Tormenta. So it's it's South Georgia has to get their act together, otherwise they could be um, you know, looking at least in an away match. Uh, but even possibly it's not, it's not a stretch to think that they could wind up in fifth, uh, for sure. Okay, looking at the team of the week. So, as I mentioned, Lansing Ignites' Tumi Moshivane was named Player of the Week. Also on the team of the week were four uh, Lansing players overall, including uh, Moshivane. You also had Cleveland, Mensigan, plus N4, and you had... Uh, four Madison players. You had Olmsberg, Diaz, Paolo Jr., and Don Smart. The Red Wolves' sole uh, sole player, uh, team of the week player was uh, Amponsa, and Greenville's Aaron Walker and Jake Keegan. So, Ross, who else deserves a shout out? Who would be on the bench of this team of the week? Well, I'd almost say Tyler Polak every week deserves to be on the team of the week <laughs> just because of the way he plays and gets up and down that wing. Great veteran presence on that team. Uh, this was obviously the only full game I watched. Connor Antley, I mean, even though he didn't get, as you said, didn't get as forward as much as he can in the past, he's that, that, that back line, and he's obviously a big part of it, is such, it's, it's full of four beasts, and he was stellar in, you know, I say stifling the Greenville offense for most of the night. And you obviously mentioned Malefi earlier for his work on Pepe. Yeah, he's a, he was he was my uh, he was my bench player would be Oalfe, especially since we uh, uh, I don't I don't think over here we had any any number sixes, so have to have a number six on the team of the week at least. That's <laughs> yeah. my that's my opinion. And uh, okay, let's preview week twenty. So week twenty coming up, we don't have any midweek games this week on Friday at four p.m. because that's when they play up in Toronto. At four p.m. on Friday is Toronto FC two versus Greenville. You will you you won't be calling this game, right? Because this is an away game for Greenville, Ross. Is that right? I won't be. I I, I think my play by play guy Chris McCoviak is doing that on his own. Um, he talked to John Harks earlier today. Um, they're going up there. I think as early as perhaps tomorrow. I, I know. Obviously, I think early tomorrow. Uh, the game is obviously Friday, so they're going to try and get in there as early as they can. I know they're dealing with. I know Kevin Pollitt's made the trip. Um, they, they are dealing with a couple of other smaller niggling injuries. With have a couple of guys questioned, which I won't get too much into. But you know, Toronto have looked very vulnerable at home lately, and another three points here would be would be great for the triumph. And uh, Toronto will be missing Griffin Dorsey because he was suspended for a red card that he received in the last match. And, uh, you know, Dorsey is an important player for, for, for Toronto, particularly when, uh, when Jordan Peruza is not on the pitch for them. Uh, Jordan Peruza obviously is, uh, he's one of my favorite players in the league, quite frankly. 
um, you know, another young player, kind of a Ricardo Pepe-esque. But I, I like how Jordan Peruse's movement in particular and his uh, uh, and the way that he gets back to uh, to receive the ball and really hold up play when uh, when Toronto needs it. So I, I important game for Toronto. You know, obviously Toronto's been slipping a little bit. They're now behind Greenville in that pack of four in the middle, uh, tied for seventh on points per game. So they need they they will need at least a draw here, I think, to really keep their playoff chances alive. On Saturday, yeah, no yeah, on Saturday, 8 p.m. is Forward Madison versus the Richmond Kickers uh, up in uh, up in Madison. Also at 8 o'clock is South Georgia Tormenta versus the Chattanooga Red Wolves. Five Red Wolves are one yellow away from suspension, including Stephen Beatty. So let's uh, we'll we'll come back and preview that game a little bit, if you will, with me, Ross. But uh, the last game of the weekend is at a 10:20 Eastern Time kickoff. It's North Texas versus FC Tucson. Basante is suspended for his double yellow card against Chattanooga. So South Georgia Tormenta versus Chattanooga Red Wolves. A Chattanooga Red Wolves win here would get them, for all intents and purposes, drawn on points per game with South Georgia Tormenta, and also leave a lot of other teams uh, the ability to get up there. What do you think, having watched the South Georgia match against Greenville this past week, what do you think South Georgia really needs to do to shore things up here against a team like Chattanooga, which, you know, their style's a bit different than than Greenville's for sure, but they have a lot of offensive threat, and they're also good at um, they're also good at at unbalancing uh, unbalancing defenses, and and that's you know that's been South Georgia's problem of late. Yeah, my, my play-by-play guy, Chris McCovey, I think has watched more Tormenta games than perhaps anybody in the country this season, um, just with his work um, doing the USL games. And he actually caught on to this about a month ago, was that teams have really started to figure Tormenta out, kind of trying to choke Micheletta out of the game. You saw how poorly they did against Greenville last Saturday without him. Um, and Tormenta, I think they're in a bit of trouble here. If they, if they fail to win this game, I, I have a feeling they, they could be out of the playoff spots by September with so many teams just behind them playing great soccer at the moment and the pressure will be on here at home and that's not a particularly long road trip for Chattanooga um, and Tormenta are tough at home but they need to beat a decent team now the last three wins have come against OCB twice in Richmond so even when they are winning games it's not against quality opponents and they have a tough run they play they play Chattanooga twice I think in the next three in Tucson and North Texas in the not in the next five as well so this is where they, they really need to pick up three points here at home. Wonderful. Anything else that you'd like to add, Ross? No, I think that's it. So we have one uh, fan question, which uh, is Floor Mingos asks, do we have any thoughts on NISA, which is uh, the another startup third division of U.S. soccer uh, league? Um, you know, I'll, you don't have to necessarily answer, Ross, unless you, you have something to say. But my, my take is more soccer, the better. Uh, I just hope that uh, that financially these leagues can stay in business, that we don't start things that kind of we can't do. You know, I, I think that's one of the issues. Everyone wants ProRail. Everyone has this dream that we're going to have a perfect soccer culture and a perfect soccer society and that there is one out there. But the problem is in the U.S. is that we don't have teams, uh, we don't have a whole 
host of teams that are financially self-supporting themselves. And until that happens, until we get butts and seats, until we get big TV deals and, and you know we're able to support the leagues, the players, the stadiums, all of the infrastructure that's needed, then you know we that that's not going to be helped necessarily by ProRel instantly. Now, do I want ProRel? Yes. But I also want to make sure that these teams that I I love and the teams that I'm really starting to fall in love with will will remain because people support teams. They don't support leagues. So build those teams, make them financially successful, and what league they play in, we won't worry about. I mean, think about North Carolina FC or um, – uh, Minnesota United. You know, these were teams that were NASL teams a couple of years ago. The league was not financially sound. There were only, but there were certain teams that were. Those teams still exist, and I think that that's where what we have to focus on is making these teams successful, and not worry so much about the league or pro rel. Support local soccer. That's the uh, that that's my rant for the day, and my hashtag spicy take is hashtag support local soccer. Ross, anything to <laughs> no, add? No, I mean I come from an area. Yeah, I mean, I come from an area of the country where we saw, you know, when I first moved here from England, we had the Miami Fusion start up and then obviously vanish. We've had the Fort Lauderdale strikers come and go. And yeah, as you said, the more. Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay Mutiny was, was there, right? So. Yeah, yeah, another one. And I, and I think there, there's certain areas of the country that are perhaps being a little neglected. A good friend of mine who also does USL games for Lansing is, is Neil Rule. And, he also does Detroit City FC games. And coming into this season, before I met Neil, I'd never heard of Detroit City FC. I obviously didn't go as deep into low league soccer then as I do now. And he used to tell me stories and send me pictures of you know, four to 5,000 a game and then Flint gets 7,000 plus you know, in their championship game last weekend. And there's certain areas of the country that I think could support would support a team no matter what league they're in. So I'm, I'm happy that there's another league coming on, though it's a question it's taken a while for these to sort of get themselves together and as you said, it's just a question. There's, there's teams in this this country, sorry, excuse me, cities in this country that will support soccer no matter the league. Um, it, it starts with the teams. You're well supporting your local team regardless of where they're playing and who they're playing against. Great. Well, you know, Ross, it's really been a pleasure being on the show with you tonight. I hope we can have you on in a future episode where uh, where Jason, you and Jason, can go at it with your spicy takes. But before <laughs> we before we go, just let people know where they can connect with you. Well, you can connect with me on Twitter at uh, that Ross Bloke, so T H A T R O S S B L O K E. And I, I know myself and many other League One commentators out there appreciate the hard work that you, Jason, and all the other independent podcasters, you know, put in around the league. I know not every team has a podcast, but we try to listen to as many as we can. And again, you guys are doing it for basically nothing every week, so we really do appreciate it. Well, if if anyone ha- supports a team that doesn't actually have a team-specific podcast. Reach out to us. We can get you in touch with the beautiful game network, and we can help you get that all set up because we have the infrastructure there. You know, the beautiful game network is not is is not a it's not a big company where you know basically fans making fan related product and content that we hope everyone else will enjoy and uh, and learn from. So, so we appreciate the support, Ross. I really really appreciate it. Our other co-host, Jason, can be reached at Home Sweet Soccer on Twitter. I can be found at Ira Jersey, and you can connect with the show on Twitter at League One Fun. That's at League, the number one, and fun. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and check out bgn.fm for other great soccer podcasts and written content covering USL League One, USL Championship, USL League Two, NWSL, Major League Soccer, and more. 
Thanks to Roughneck Scarves, official scarf supplier of Major League Soccer, United Soccer Leagues, and U.S. Soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. Until next time, for myself, Ross, and Matt, please support local soccer. Thank you.